I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact, in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and joining the show today are Exeter fly half Gareth Steenson, former USA captain Dan Lyle, England and Wasps ladies fullback Danielle Waterman and regular guest Nigel Owens is here to answer your questions on rugby's laws. But first I'm delighted to say that joining me in the studio is the former Saracens and England flanker Maggie Alfonso. Hello Maggie. Hello Brian. Uh, tense weekend in Europe. Yes, not it's been all happening. <laughs> it, it has so much to talk about. Let's start. Uh, maybe low lights: the injuries and uh, cards for v- Billy Vinipola, mm. James Haskell. Vinipola been out for a long time. Comes back, breaks his arm. Now out for well, anything eight, ten weeks. Yeah. Uh, given that Hughes is also um, out. What are England's options at eight now? Well, I guess the the talk is about Sam Simmons. Um, He's playing well for Exeter, scored on the weekend, um, looking strong. I think a lot of people would say he would probably make a better option at seven. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess Eddie is quite limited who who could play eight, obviously, with Nathan Hughes out. So I think it'd be great to see Sam Simmons... Get an opportunity over Six Nations, especially against Italy, first game up. That would be um, that would be his kind of running game. And um, it might be without James Haskell as an option for a while. Um, what did you make of that incident? It was one which he got red carded for for not um, you know not using his arms in a tackle on uh, the. Quins and Lions sent to Jamie Roberts. Yeah, I think it was a, the right decision. It was a red card. Um, and that James would be quite open and honest and say, you know, the red card was the right call. It was a dangerous contact to the head. Um, and it was quite funny looking at some of the tweets post that game. And, you know, fair enough. I think it's it, it's someone like James in particular, you know, he doesn't go out of his way to, to deliberately um, have foul play like that. And, uh yeah, I mean, it's good to see both him and uh, Jamie Roberts at the end, you know, just sort of pat it off, really. But um, And thankfully, Jamie's OK. It, it is. I mean, but they, I mean, everyone comes on Twitter now afterwards and apologises, and that's because that sort of thing gets taken into account at the disciplinary hearing. But they're, cause they're not going to come off and say, yeah, I meant it, mate, and I, you know, I wish I'd have got you better, really, are they? Um, Mario Bastero's in trouble. Wasn't picked up during the game, but was picked up by the sighting officer. Um calling someone an effing faggot. Now, I don't think, I don't know who it was directed at, and I don't think the player, or any player it was directed at, actually heard it. But it's been picked up, and 
what do you think should happen? Bastaro said, sorry, he to the moment didn't mean it. His club have defended him saying he's not homophobic. Mm. Do you know? I I I think um, they should go hard on him. <laughs> Personally, I'm I'm you know I'm fully one to uh, agree that there should be no um, abuse against you know homophobia, uh, racial abuse, anything in that sense. Whether it's aimed at a person or not, I think it puts our game into uh, a bad light, and and unfortunately this has created that. And I, I truly believe they should come down hard on him. Well, the criminal law doesn't ap- apply other than for assault possibly on on the field but you know were it in the public um arena that would be an aggravated offence actually um and you know i think you can distinguish it from you know mere abuse swearing at someone because he chose that particular word he does say it was in the heat of the moment you people can and you know i'm, I'm certainly not uh, going to be a hypocrite and say i haven't said things which i regret in the uh, in the heat of the moment but I'm afraid that this is a professional game. Uh, they're in the spotlight. And the fact is that um, it's the sort of thing which, as you say, doesn't paint the uh, game in a particular light. I think a ban is on the way. We, uh, saw, we saw quite similar with uh, Joe Marler and his incident um, with Lee Sampson. Yeah. And I think that obviously that that is a precedent, didn't it? That was yeah. two weeks, wasn't it? Yeah, so that's why I don't. So you would be looking at that probably as a. The you know a comparator. Yeah. Okay. Um, interesting piece by Sir Ian McGeekin, and one of the things that came up as a question from uh, one of the followers was um, how, why are the he's from Declan? I assume he's Irish. That's a, a big assumption. But why is the Aviva Premiership so far behind the Pro 14 in Euro head-to-heads, and why does the Pro 14 style of play seem to be? more expansive. Now, Ian McGeekin, Sir Ian McGeekin said in a piece in The Telegraph that he was uh, convinced that the Pro 14 sides are playing more freely because they don't have the threat of relegation. And I'll have to agree on that one. Um, Look, if I look at the Women's Premiership, for example, the Tyrrells uh, Premier 15s, there's no relegation for two years. And actually, as a result of that, what you're seeing are teams just really going for it, playing, and also an opportunity for young players to come through, develop, and create a very strong team. And especially in the second season, you'll start to see teams even get better. Yeah, well, we we mentioned the relegation uh, in the context last week of um, not being allowed to develop young players because it was a dogfight each year. But this is another aspect of it and certainly one that has been there in Super Rugby for a long, long time. And I didn't quite understand. It's my fault. I got it wrong. Uh, the the effect, and I thought that a lot of the expansive rugby in Super Rugby was because it was a product and people wanted to sell it. They had to compete with Rugby League and so on. And that may well have been mm. one element of it. But what it has done, it's allowed those players from the big three um, countries you know, in the Southern Hemisphere to play with and try out this style of play, which is one you can't just turn on. You can have the ambition to move the ball freely, but obviously you need to be in the right position. Players need to get the innate and intrinsic uh, running lines to support and so on. So, you know, I agree. and I think there's something in that, and I'm convinced that if the Premiership and the Championship... You know, had a moratorium, say for two or three years, so you don't block relegation. Mm. They would have the uh, chance not only to develop 
um, their younger players that have the chance to develop this sort of expansive style without the threat of relegation each year. And also, um, they will be able to plan you know, their uh, business models to get in and out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, only Exeter from the Premiership are in the top two places going into the final round of Champions Cup. Now, um, it's not to say that uh, other teams, um, Saracens just possibly, um, Bathpool is very tight, but you're, you've got to say they are outside bets. And for Saracens, um, y- your club, yeah. you would not have put them in this position when the tournament started. What, what's happened? Well, they've been through a lot, haven't they? There's been there's been uh, injuries to some key players, Maro Toji, Billy Villapola. Obviously, he's had a series of injuries. And I think that's had a real impact on the way Saracens have played. They've also had organisational changes um, at the club. And I think, obviously, a, a run of losses sort of compacts itself one after the other. And then losing to Clermont um, away and at home has had an impact. And I, I tell you what's strange, though. I mean... For large parts of, of the, that game against the Ospreys, they looked to be in control, decent possession, and you were just waiting for Saracens to do what they do, create opportunities, exploit them. And yet, in this game and in previous games, um, there seems to have been sort of a listlessness and a, a lack of, not, not passion, it's not they're not trying, but the spark there. Is it, is it possible f- that after you know two very long seasons and all they've achieved, that simply they're flat and they they need a they won't get a break, but but that's essentially what they need. Yeah, I mean, look, they've gone on to to achieve so much of the last two seasons. It's a big ask to think they're going to pull it out of the bag uh, third season in a row. Um, but look, they've still got a good caliber of players, and when you're watching that game against Ospreys, you can tell that there was a lot riding on that game. They had to come away with something, and in the first half in particular, it very much there was you didn't see the Saracens that we normally used to seeing. Um, look, they're up against Ospreys. Ospreys a very good side. Second half, you start to see a bit more rugby from from Saracens. But to be honest, Ospreys were very good, especially in the scrum, your your particular area. And in defence, they dominated. Yeah, in defence as well, they're very physical. I mean, at the breakdown in particular, they made some very good turnovers, and and that's what Saracens are normally very strong at. You know, the breakdown area. And I, you know, thankfully we had Owen Fowles' boot, which was on fire um, that night, and and it kept us in the game. And obviously, a draw will take that, but it's. it's you know, looking like our quarterfinal hopes might not necessarily be very strong. Yeah, well, now we can speak to someone whose club thumped uh, French opposition, Exeter 41, Montpellier 10, a regular contributor to the show. It's Gareth Steenson. Hello, Gareth. How you doing? You all right? All right, mate. Uh, you've just signed a new two-year deal. Yeah, no, obviously very pleased. Any time you can have your uh, future sorted, it's great and to be involved with the, the club again for another couple of seasons is great and I'm really looking forward to it. Have they given you more money? <laughs> I'm happy enough. <laughs> oh, that's fair enough. You politicians answer, that's where you should go next. Now, right. um, it was a very, well, a very comprehensive win in the end, um, but still all the pools, you know, throw up all sorts of permutations. I mean, obviously you, you just need to win, but... Um, have you been surprised at the 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 difficulty that the Premiership sides seem to have had in Europe this year? No, I don't know if it's surprise. I think that's just you know the level of competition. Obviously, whenever it's it's quite tough. I know we've definitely found it for years. Um, when you 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 put a lot of emotional energy into playing in the, in the Premiership week in week out, and then you have to get yourself up going into Europe. It's always 
it is another challenge, um, you know, and I think that's something we've probably not got right in the past. We we had a really good start to um, the the European Cup this year, and we probably what let us down was our home game against Leinster. We sort of we were on a good good run of form in the Premiership, and we kind of rolled into the fixture. Um, which ultimately the first half against Leinster sort of let it really let us down, and um, we've probably paid the price a little bit for that now. But you know we've had a really good result over the weekend, and w- again you know we'll give ourselves a chance going up to Glasgow this week. Hi Gareth, it's Maggie here. How you doing, Maggie? Um, look, let's go back to the game against Montpellier. Um, I really want to know what was said at half time in the changes because in the first half, it, you know, you got your try, but in the second half, it, you very much just pulled away. You know, what what was said and 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 what brought you guys together to really just step up another level? Oh uh, no, look, I think it, it's a, it, it, there wasn't much really said at half time. We were sort of just reiterating the points that we'd done in the first half. We very much talk about having fast starts and going out and trying to pay, play at a pace in the game and teams obviously near the start of a game they're obviously not as fatigued as they get later on in games and we very much were talking if we keep the keep a good high tempo because what, it's what we did to Montpellier when we were over in Montpellier they're a very big team they're a physical side and we felt if we kept the ball on the field for long periods of time um, not kicking the ball off the park that they, they would start to fatigue and slow up and we didn't do anything really drastically different. We just um, we just took our opportunities, and you know, obviously with a big heavy pack and a heavy pack heavy team, um, you know, we just started to reap rewards later in the game. Uh, Gareth, one of the things that was highlighted in, in the, one of the papers today was the the tactic whereby you move the ball, you take the ball flat, you have Henry Slade as a drag back option, and then when that doesn't work, you have inside runners. And I've said for. A, for quite a while now this season, it's become obvious to me that the sides that are succeeding are the ones that are posing more problems for defenders, so they have more options in terms of uh, of runners. Has that come from Rob Baxter or the players or, or what? Oh, that's that's taken us, um, I'd say, that we've been working at that for a good four or five years, really. Um, you know, it's it's just been a development, really, from um, ultimately, really, from when we came up into the Premiership, we we realised at the time we were very much a sort of ten man team, and if we were going to, that's all that's all well and good to maybe sustain yourself at the stage that we were at, and we we had to develop our game, and the likes of Ali Hafer and Ricky Pello, these guys have worked very hard on our attack, um, and you know we're just getting, I think we're getting a better understanding now of what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. But ultimately, we're looking to play with a lot of pace in the game, and we always we just feel that if we can get guys running hard at the line, that um, it, it just makes the makes defenders have to make decisions. And you know, if you're if you're putting a bit of doubt in the opposition's mind, it's it's great. Um, you know, in terms of your attack. Gareth, I want to ask you about Sam Simmons. Um, obviously, we've seen Billy Villapola's picked up an injury, and he'll be ruled out of the Six Nations. Um, Sam Simmons is playing very well. What are your thoughts on his future, you know, with England and and where he can go on to? Oh, it's, you know, uh, Sam's. We've known about Sam for a little while. It's just this has been the season really for him to step up, and especially in, you know, just at the back end of last season, he was just bringing a lot of energy to his play, and he just has a dynamism about him that's just phenomenal. His speed off the mark, his ability to break tackles, and um, you know, his quality um, is. It's great that he's actually got that recognition now into that England squad. I know whenever he first went up, he was kind of just, right, I'm just going to try and get myself in here, try and learn the players. And I think there was a couple of injuries sort of allowed him to 
to be involved in the first couple of games in the autumn, which is great for him. And obviously, there's been a few injuries elsewhere, but it might open the door for him. But ultimately, you can play him anywhere in the back row. Um, really, he does a great job for us at number eight. Whether he starts the game or he comes off the bench with a lot of impact, so. He's a big player for us, and hopefully, you know, if he can keep his form going, he get a good run in the Six Nations. Gareth, I'm going to ask you, where would you play him quickly? Where would you put him? <laughs> eight or seven for England? Uh, f- for England, um, I think he'd be really good at seven. But again, he's a guy who can do a great job for eight, number eight. Obviously, with us, he, we can play him anywhere. We've had him at seven, we've had him at eight, and he's done a great job for us. So it's really, you know, just utilising what's best for the team. Uh, Gareth, just finally, the way the uh, pools are, Poised, just about possible to go through as one of the three uh, best runners-up with 18 points. 19 points um, makes it a little bit more likely. And to do that, you'd have to get uh, a win over Glasgow with a bonus point. How confident are you that you can achieve that? Well, you know, we take a lot of confidence of what we've done this weekend. Um, You know, we've got ourselves emotionally very charged for the game. Um, like I said, we tried to keep it as simple as possible. We didn't go out and talk an awful lot about going to try and get the bonus point. We feel as a team, the way we play the game, um, that we can score points. And we can score them quite quickly. I know we were only seven up at half time, but we felt we were in a really good position at the weekend. So, and we know that, that uh, Glasgow are going to be a very tough outfit. You know, I think they rested quite a few boys last week, and we're fully expecting them to put out a full gun team. You know, some guys getting time ready going into the Six Nations which is a really good challenge for us because ultimately we know we've got to go up there and we'll talk very simply again this week about trying to really just get our emotional levels ready and um, hopefully if we can go up and put in our best Chiefs performance again um, we just give ourselves a chance so um, we're really looking forward to the weekend and hopefully you know for a really good game Well Gareth best of uh, luck and congratulations on your new two-year deal. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, guys. All the best. Thank you. Maggie, let's look um, at the uh, Challenge Cup and going you know, well in there, Gloucester, and especially Newcastle. Um, it's a way into the Champions Cup. Which of the t- those two sides do you think have the better chance? I'm going to say Newcastle at the moment, in particular, more with their form. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw what they've done, obviously, in the Viva Premiership, um, especially finishing, um, well, taking on Exeter and been, been beating them at a good result. Um, played well on the weekend. I, I honestly feel, not based on who they're about to play, but just generally their confidence and how they're playing, um, I feel they have a better chance. I'm not saying Gloucester don't, but I'm, I'm really... I'm rooting for Newcastle at the moment based on what we've seen over the season so far. Uh, we haven't mentioned uh, one of the games over the weekend which got attracted an awful lot of uh, positive press and that was the Scarlets win over Bath 35-17 at the wreck and yet that pool remains very, very tight. A lot of people um, on my timeline were saying uh, that's the way they want Wales to play. Oh, it was. I have to admit, I was watching that, and um, look, Bath are a great side, and they're, they're missing key players. Uh, you know, uh, Falatau, who wasn't there, so they're missing some key players, and also um, Priest Priestland, <laughs> sorry, um, went off very early on in the what, first, I think, ten minutes or so, and that was huge for Bath, uh, in particular as he, as he played well in the previous fixture. So. You, you kind of look at the way Scarlets are playing. They're playing fast. They're playing with a lot of flair. They're recycling the ball really quick at the breakdown. Uh, and, and it's exciting rugby to watch. And you kind of think, come Six Nations, uh, you probably will see a lot of that, that style of rugby. Well, we'll return to international stuff. But I want now 
to uh, broaden our horizons because I'm pleased to say we're able to speak um, to uh, the former Eagle, Dan Lyle, who's over in the USA, and we're going to speak to him on a number of topics. Hello, Dan. Brian. Hello, Maggie. How are you? How are you? I'm all right. Tell us, um, it's been mooted that one of the East Coast teams could join um, the uh, Pro 14, um, at the, at the South African franchises, the Cheetahs and the Kings have come in this year. How serious is that? Well, I think that it's a uh, it's a novel idea um, in, in a lot of different ways, but logistically, I think it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a really really strong challenge. I think first and foremost, it's not necessarily about getting on airplanes and player welfare at the beginning. Ultimately, it'll become that, but it's really about you know uh, what's Europe going to be all about? What what's the what's the interchange between a solely owned franchise by entrepreneurs? Uh, against union-driven or union-owned um, uh, leagues and teams. Uh, so I think that you have a lot of business enterprise to have a discussion about before you get into um, a singular franchise that's owned by Americans that would look like the Jaguars look like, you know, in the Super in the super Rugby, if, if it's all U.S. players uh, or majority of U.S. players. Finally, it, it's also about the, then is that standard of competition as solely U.S. players uh, trumped by a number of international players playing for it, which then goes into the goal of the competition in the first place. Is it to have a U.S. team with non-U.S. players? Is it So there's a lot of answers, I think, that you have to study and have rational conversations about and build up to things. And lastly, the Pro 14 is not even played on any level of, of television over here to where the brands of all of these teams are known and commoditized yet. When you've got 33 million Irish Americans and you know, more than that in, in, in Brits and, and same in Scots and obviously the Italians and so forth. You have to, you have to build a brand awareness. And I think that starts with some broadcast and some, and some, uh, some of that energy before uh, all of that just comes crashing down with a single franchise. Well, one of the things that doesn't uh, need branding is uh, Sevens Rugby. It's taken off uh, all around the world and the RWC Sevens in 2018 is being held in San Francisco Bay at AT&T. Park, um, what's what's your involvement with that? Well, my company AEG Anschutz Entertainment, you know, and people over there will know us. We own the uh, the O2 Arena and the High Park Summer Series and ATP Tennis and all those different things we do um, in Europe. We um, uh, we're doing uh, the merchandise for that event. Uh, we have a worldwide merchandise, and we're also working on an ancillary fan and business. Uh, experiences around there. We have a lot of uh, music venues and things that we do. So uh, we're supportive of the event from a marketing perspective and a, and a, and a development perspective. But it's being run by World Rugby uh, and USA Rugby as, as all World Cups are done, um, you know, and in, in moving into it. Well, you've been tournament director of the last Vegas Seven, so you've got experiences. Given the enormous success, and it was a real success at the Olympics, where do you think the... World Rugby tournaments now sit in the pecking order for players, um, you know, countries, and so on. Well, yeah, World Cups, uh, 15s World Cups, uh, don't unfortunately in America uh, get many bylines. Um, it's not something that is. Uh, even if we were to win a quarterfinal, and our women uh, got into the top four this year um, in a stellar effort, and so many wonderful crossover athletes from sevens to 15s, and all those things being done, but but Olympics. Um, are in every paper 
um, for multiple weeks and the buildup and sponsors and broadcasters know all about it. So Sevens has got a, a head start by way of its uh, the way that we think of international sports in America. So the, the World Cup Sevens has the opportunity to really create a springboard for the sport um, if, if we launch a 10-year plan out of the back of that. I think that's been the gap for America and for the world coming into America is that we've, we've, we've stuttered and stopped with the next event, the next event, and really not had a multi-year calendar that really can project. So, um, so everybody's got to work together off the back of that, that men's and women's, sevens and fifteens, have a multi-year calendar off the back of this and, and really a 10-year vision. And so you think 10 years, well, the Olympics will be in America in 10 years, in 2028, in Los Angeles. And my company's, uh, we own the StubHub Center in Los Angeles where the uh, where men's and women's rugby will be. The, the, the 2031 World Cup would be a wonderful opportunity for America, you know, or, or 34. And I think that takes a, um, world rugby and a number of unions and USA Rugby and, and corporate America working together for those goals. And, and all of that put together, Brian, is – Yes, Sevens has got, a, it's got a head start because of our historical nature of rugby, excuse me, of Olympics. Um, but I think that Sevens, you know, is, is a gateway for, uh, not no pun with the, 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 the gateway Golden Gate Bridge, but uh, for American rugby, you know, uh, moving forward. So Dan, I was out um, in the, I was out in Las Vegas uh, last season, and um, I've seen how much Sevens is really respected out in America. It's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. What I would love to know what the perception is in terms of what people think of Sevens from other sports. So we've seen lots of crossover athletes. So in the you know, women's uh, USA Sevens side, there's Nia Tapper, there's a Lev Kelter, and obviously in the men's side, there's a Perry Baker. There's many who've crossed over. Do you think we'll start to see more crossover athletes come over to Sevens? Well, I think it's transferable, Maggie, as that's been proved, right, as you're, as you're pointing out. And I think that, uh, you know, that the, there's so many people that, that, wake up in the morning at 21 years old and still see an athlete in the mirror, you know, and, and if you played soccer and basketball and a number of kind of open chain sports, you, you've got the ability to cross over. Now it's not, you know, uh, it's just kind of a special forces analogy. You don't take one sailor and get one Navy seal, right? You take a, you take a couple thousand and then you narrow down through a lot of stuff to get to that point. So we have the good news is that we've got a lot of athletes, but there still has to be uh, the identification is not the problem. The commitment and development phase and that old high-performance ICD thing, the commitment and development is, is really a financial and a training environment. And right now, we've through the you know, through the Olympics and the United States Olympic Committee funding, we've been able to put uh, 15 to 20 athletes, men and women, under a full-time training, uh, you know, just just enough wage for them to kind of uh, keep keep that career going. But the, the the more exposure and the more uh, uh, more financing that comes into the game, the more of those athletes and the more that you see, will see uh, many Americans waking up. And if you can combine that with uh, the broadening of the game, the, of the quality and the quantity, quantity at the bottom, which is really every union in the world's mission, right? You want to grow your base quantitatively and qualitatively, and you want to put competitive national teams on the field. We're kind of in that conundrum of we're growing, uh, and, and the quality and the quantity of, of our competitions uh, that are that are coming out of the uh, out of high school and college have got to grow. Otherwise, we send our, our, our send our pros abroad, or we put a limited number of athletes under a training environment. And I think so. Yeah, Maggie, it can be done, um, but we're it's got to be done in a functional way, and, and uh, that's uh, that's our challenge. 
Dan, I can't let you go without mentioning this. You had uh, trials, I believe, for the Minnesota Vikings and the Washington Redskins. Case Keenan, uh, Vikings 29-24. How far can they go? Yeah, I have, I have, I have a, a wall uh, behind my desk where <laughs> yeah, obviously my caps are. And then April 10th of 1996, Dear Dan, encloses your NFL contract with the Minnesota Vikings. Yeah, please sign <laughs> all the copies in return. I'm just reading off of it. Yeah, I mean, it was unbelievable that this weekend's sport and the NFL uh, and, and European Cup, uh, you know, combining the viewing uh, of the morning with, with European uh, Cup of rugby and then follow it in the afternoons with the NFL. It doesn't get much better as a as a as, as now an ex-athlete uh, watching sports in Minnesota. Certainly, the last play of the game. They all they all point out that the uh, all the, the blogosphere that the, the defensive back for the New Orleans Saints, who I won't uh, name on, on here, you know, dove at the tackle. Um, you know, had his head down and didn't have his arms up. And they all say if he would have uh, tackled like a rugby person, you know, the game would have been over and Saints would have been on to the championship. But uh, he uh, he kind of dove down and put his, you know, had his arms to the side. So, you know, that rugby tackling uh, is, uh, you know, it's not just it's not just potentially a safer tech, but it's a it's a much more efficient. And uh, he didn't uh, he didn't make that uh, in the Minnesota run. Well, fascinating. Thanks very much, Dan. Best of luck. Thanks, everyone. Maggie. Um, You've got to experience other sports. Sevens, um, 2018s. Uh, Australia, they're announcing equal pay for men and women, runs to 2020. Um, and also see the women's 15 aside game included for the first time ever. Now, for all the stick that they are, if you got about focusing on sevens and not 15s between the tournaments and so on. The women's game in this country is the best resourced in the in in the world. How are how is the women's game going to tackle the inequality in funding with other unions doing it sort of piecemeal? Because you can't have fair and even competition if that doesn't happen. I think that's going to be the biggest challenge uh, in the women's game. There's you know different. Uh, governing bodies for different countries are given different amounts of money. So, you know, think about the RFU. We we used to give a lot of money in, in the 15s game, and as a result of that, we dominated the 15s world, uh, and sevens varied. And now it's very much changed. You're starting to see teams like France dominate in the 15s world. Um, you know, y- other teams like Ireland, Wales, you know, our home nations, they're all starting to come to the forefront because more money's being invested. I think that's it's like with the men's in particular, when you think about when they went from the amateur era to the professional era, there's those sort of inequalities and it'll take time for um, there to be an, an equal playing field. And actually, it's brilliant what Australia have done. I think it's about time and actually what it will do, it will encourage other nations to follow suit. And it'll be great to see that across the board, equal pay for both men and women because they both work incredibly hard. Sevens in particular is not an easy sport to play, nor is 15s. But, uh, you know, you just want to make sure that the athletes are getting paid for for the hard work that they put into uh, their training and obviously playing. The Tyrrells Premier 15s has been a success. Um, We've talked previously about the fact that the path from mini rugby to senior rugby uh, in the women's game is not seamless because it's not year on year. Um, How... Close, and do you think that those people have got franchises in the Premiership should be mandated to run your teams just as a start? Because if you have a framework, even if it's you know the, the, the tender are there now, mm. at least that is a start per region. 
you know, I haven't thought about that. Um, you know, maybe that could be uh, a strategy to look f- look going forward. Uh, I think at the moment, the introduction of this new um, premiership has been brilliant because it's allowed teams to develop a professional structure. And then I think as year two comes along, we'll start to see a focus on developing the teams, but then also how we can develop further grassroots rugby at a lower age group, because I think that's where our biggest challenges are. How can we get a greater talent pool that will last well, ensure that we've got more players to select from um, over the coming years, over the next World Cups. Uh, and that's that's a big priority, I think, going forward. Let's now speak to someone who is playing in the Tyrells Premier 15. I'm pleased to say that we can speak to Danielle Waterman, England's fullbacks, who's got multiple Six Nations crowns. Hello, Daniel. Hi, how you doing? I'm OK. Um, just as a very general starter, before we go on to talk about the games, how do you think the uh, Premier 15s have started off this year? Um, yeah, I think it's been a fantastic investment by the RFU because the standard of rugby um, is actually is is really noticeable this year. Um, has increased. Uh, we're doing we're doing okay at Wasps as well. So on a personal level, um, I'm enjoying uh, enjoying playing in the black and gold strip. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been it's been really good and noticeably, it's actually seen um, Shauna Brown um, come through the system and through the club programme and selected into the EPS uh, EPS squad this year. So it, already we're starting to see players that are performing week in, week out for their clubs get recognition into the England squad. Well, Ellie Underwood uh, scored a hat-trick for Richmond, but they're still uh, languishing uh, in eighth. And if you know any thing about the history of women's rugby, Richmond were one of the clubs that habitually uh, hegemonised the women's game. How far off are they from their old glories? They've got a lot of work to do still, do you reckon? I think Richmond have gone through some challenging, a challenging couple of seasons. They had a number of players move um, away from the club and join Harlequins Ladies, um, and so they've had a real rebuilding phase. Um, but by the sounds of things, they, with the new investment, they've really um, put a lot of emphasis on strength and conditioning, coaching. Um, they had a, two noticeable signings with Gail Mignon, um, the French hooker and captain. So. Um, yeah, I think they're definitely building as a club. Um, I think the fact that they did lose so many international players, they were always going to struggle. Um, but Rowena Burnfield, who's returned into the England setup after two years out, um, is doing a fine job of captaining them. Danielle, or Nolly, shall I say, it's Maggie Alfonsi here. How are you? I'm very well, Maggie. <laughs> Great uh, to hear from you. I would love to, um, I guess, find out a bit more about what's it like to have a female director of rugby or a head coach um, so Giselle is obviously your head coach and there's only I think she's one of three female coaches in the premiership or no one of four what's it like having a female coach does it make a difference because obviously you've had both both genders uh, work with you um, to be honest, uh, Giselle, irrelevant of male or female, is a fantastic rugby coach. She's a fantastic director of rugby. Um, she's really developed um, a positive and competitive culture at Wasps. And all of the work that she's doing off-field with all of the players there is creating a great atmosphere on the field. Um, she is one of the best coaches I've ever worked with. And I've had the privilege to work with a number of male and females over the years. Um going back to when we were both in the squad in 2006 and she coached us at the World Cup then um, you know she she's definitely grown in experience having worked with the London Irish Academy 
um, and a number of the England boys that are now um, are performing at uh, senior level with Jonathan Joseph, uh, to name a few. So yeah, she's she's a great lady and a great coach. And I'd love to ask a personal question about you and your playing, um, I guess, international season. Um, I, I never I hate to ask these questions. When do you think you're going to retire? Oh, Maggie, um, I think to be honest, I I have questioned that you know that myself a few times over the last couple of years. But I'm, I'm absolutely loving my rugby. Um, I've been challenged in a new way at Wasps. Um, I'm feeling like I'm still performing at the top level um, and I'm adding to the team. Obviously, it's a new look um, with a lot of the younger girls coming through the system. Ellie Kildan um, wearing the fullback shirt of the Autumn Series as well um, kind of epitomises the, the strength of the development programmes that are in place in England. And it's, and it's a real joy to be part of such a new look team as well. So, yeah, not quite sure when I'm going to hang up the boots, but um, I'm definitely enjoying it at the moment. Well, Davinia uh, Catland uh, has got a couple of tries uh, to keep Quinns just uh, in front uh, in their game against Loughborough Lightning and the uh, Cleal sisters recorded five tries between them, uh, three for Bryony as um, unfortunately the uh, Worcester Valkyries got absolutely thrashed by Saracens. Feel very sorry for them, I know they're, they're trying, but if you had to... Uh, pick a team and it can't be was obviously from the top two Saracens Quins which do you think is stronger? I think they're two very different sides um, Saracens have got obviously um, a superb back row and Poppy Cleo Bryony Cleo and Marley Packer are doing a great job for them in terms of the ball carrying that they have the defensive structures but the ability to just get them on the front foot and make um, allow the backs to be playing off of and good solid ball. Um, Zoe Harrison there at fly half is, you know, a real, real talent um, coming through the England setup. Um, she's got a fantastic kicking game out of hand and off the tee. Um, so by having the front football that, that the girls are producing, um, she's really releasing a, a, an exciting backline. Um, on the other side, you've got. Um, Rachel Burford pulling the strings at fly half, obviously noticeably out of position from her England England shirt, but they've got a really young and exciting team. Um, and uh, I think they're dominating probably a little bit more up front with the likes of Vicky Cormer in the front row, and as you mentioned, Davinia um, in at hooker. So I think probably I'd give Saracens a nudge at the moment, and actually that's showing in the table, um, but Harlequins are definitely hot on their heels. Well, we will soon see. Thank you very much, Danielle. Thank you. No problem. In other news, Scottish Rugby is holding a series of meetings with seven of the country's top domestic clubs to see who is genuinely interested in becoming one of the six semi-professional franchises from 2019. Now, you may not have caught up with this, but there's been a lot of concern in in uh, Scottish rugby, as indeed there are, uh, there is in in a lot of other countries, about bridging the uh, gap between <clears throat> professional um, and the amateur game, a lot of the talent coming through, making sure that it's there. And this is a proposal, and I'm very pleased to say we can speak to the Scottish rugby technical director, Stephen uh, Gemmel. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Now then, the Super Six is going to replace the ten team BT. Premiership. How has this format come about, given the questions you were asked to address? 
Well, the, the key questions we were asked to address right, from our from our members were improving the standard of of uh, the top level of domestic game, looking to provide a pathway for aspirant players and and coaches, and also looking at having non-payment of players underneath this new semi-professional level. So there's been lots of consultation, lots of discussion uh, with the different forum that we have within Scottish Rugby and our, our member clubs. And we've got to a point where um, we've gone out now with a, a franchise document and we're looking for uh, bidders to come forward. Uh, it says here, uh, correct me if any of these details are wrong, at least one Super 6 franchise will be based in each of Scotland's four regions, Caledonia, Glasgow and West Edinburgh and East and the Borders. They'll play 20 competitive matches a season. The players' uh, squads will comprise of no more than 35 players um, with a maximum payment of 12,000 per annum. The Scots Rugby Union will be uh, contributing towards uh, this. Is is this going, in the end, to, to solve the problem? Well, look, we certainly can't stand still, Brian, and I think this is certainly... We believe uh, the solution at the moment, and you know, moving forward and looking ahead at the end of the, the five years, we would hope that you know we've continued to produce enough players of quality and coaches of quality that that we may be able to expand it. Look, we've got to do something. Um, you'll have seen the progress that's, that's been made within you know Scottish rugby, both in the professional ranks and and with the, the national team and. We need to keep uh, moving forward and we certainly believe that this is part of the solution, if not uh, the whole solution. When you mention franchises, people from a lot of sports you know, immediately shudder because the, um, the format of a franchise is not well received in this country like it is in other countries. If it turns out that a lot of clubs, existing clubs, can and want to fulfil that, would you prefer to, to, to keep those as they are? Absolutely, Brian. We we see this very much being a club-based model. You know, we want to reward clubs that have been successful and clubs that have aspirations to continue to to move forward. And that's been part of the the discussions that we've been having with our with our members. And we had to call the new um, franchises as as we've come to. So we needed the, the tournament to have a different feel. Uh, the name term, you know, the terminology franchises you've said can be well received in some areas and not in others. But it's about ensuring that everybody understands that this is different. This is what we see as the part-time professional part of our game in Scotland and underneath that is our, is our solely amateur game. So the concept of, of the franchise was such we wanted to be primarily existing club-based, but we also needed it to be open enough that if a number of clubs wanted to get together or a number of clubs along with other institutions wanted to get together and put something forward because they felt that was right for them in their area, they were allowed to do so. Well, Stephen, we will uh, find out uh, over the years whether this will, will work. Uh, you know, good luck with the initiative. And most of all, or not most of all, but certainly an important fact, I hope it manages uh, Scottish uh, rugby to, to be able to do something that the RFU haven't been able to do, and that's make sure that clubs at a very low level aren't paying uh, any players anything, you know, on a sort of a blackmail basis because other players down the road from, from clubs are, you know, are getting that money and that money's going out again. So good luck with that as well. Perfect, that's good. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Maggie, we'll shortly be talking to... Nigel Owens and the, the lots of things um, always come up every week in terms of the laws 
they are deliberately made opaque so that referees have discretion because if they didn't, then games just wouldn't flow or they'd be accused of either over-refereeing or under-refereeing. Now, one of the things that, that's come up, Austin Healy, uh, in his column in The Telegraph on Saturday, said we should bring back rocking. Now, I don't think you ever played with rocking, did you? Um, I did, actually. Did you? I did. I, I look older, well, sorry, I look younger <laughs> yeah. than I actually am. Um, I did have rocking in my day, yeah. What do you think about that? So, as a player, um, I think it was very useful in the sense that it would clear the breakdown area, it made it easier for referees to make a decision, um, and the ball remained um, quick. So, the, the game pretty much favoured the attacking side. So I liked it as a player, as a spectator, um, especially now that I'm on sidelines and, I'm, and I you know, talk to parents and so on. I think it doesn't look good and that's my biggest fear. I don't want our game to look bad and put people off from wanting to join our game if they see what is aggressive rucking and marks on people's backs and so on. That's where my biggest concerns come from. What about you? What do you think of it? I loved it. Um, uh, it sorted lots of things out, not least the... Uh, need to keep your temper because you'd always find someone at the bottom at some point, which goes partly towards, uh, I suppose, the safety aspect where, you know, people see it. The thing is, it, you know, it was never as dangerous as people said. It did clear the ball. I understand why it won't come back. It just, it just won't. There's no point in even talking about it. And I, irrespective of whether it's a good idea or not, and I think it is a good idea, I'm afraid the... Uh, just the aesthetics of it in today's you know, age and, and the way that it will be seen on television, I'm afraid um, that initiative has gone forever. Uh, well, I'm very pleased to say we can actually now speak to Nigel Owens. Nigel, I've got a question from uh, a, a listener. Um, he wants to know if you can clear up what referees term a fair sack as against uh, a penalty for collapsing a mall. The sacks tend to happen from from a line out. So what a team will do, the, the attacking team will tend to want to set up a mall and then obviously drive drive forwards with with with, with the way they play play the mall. But technically, the mall is formed. So when you have the ball carrier and people bound onto him, as soon as one defender binds onto them, you technically form a mall. So what a lot of people are asking the question is, well, once you bind onto a player then and, and form that mall, how can you get away with? what we call stacking and not being penalised. And the reason for it is this. As long as you bound on to the ball carrier, even though he'll have one or two teammates bound on as well, once you bind on to him, you're technically forming a mall. But because your actions are not to form a mall, your actions are to actually make a tackle, as long as you take that to ground immediately, then that's what we call as an Ill, as a legal sack. So you're making actual attempt to tackle rather than set up the mall. And if you don't take it to the ground immediately, then obviously the mall is formed and it becomes a mall and you're not allowed to take it to ground then. So that's why for somebody watching the game, they maybe think, well, what's the difference between collapsing a mall and sacking? Well, sacking is it's done immediately. Yeah. So your actions are deemed to be making a tackle which we deem to be legal, rather than setting up the mall. So it's, it's immediate, and presumably the mall can't have moved. No, the mall can't have moved. Look, if it if it is moving one step and you grab it and take it down immediately, then that's play that's play on because you're taking it down immediately. But once you grab on and you fail to take it down immediately, then it becomes a mall. And then if you take it down after that, then it becomes an illegal collapsing of the mall. Uh, Jamie Roberts went off for a head assessment. Jamie Mast 
on Twitter um, wants to know, we've covered this subject before, but it'd be interesting to uh, redo it. What, when a head injury occurs on the field, um, what is the protocol for you? And to what, up to what point are you sort of responsible? Well, at the end of the day, end of the day Brian, it, it, it's your responsibility as a referee to safety the players on the field. Now, the great people we have, the medical people looking after the welfare of the players, they tend to take over everything and they will take care of everything. But at the end of the day, if you as a referee feel or you've seen a player being showing these symptoms of uh, HIA or concussion, and we've had these training, we've been at meetings where we've been told and trained of what to look out for the symptoms of a concussion or HIA. If you as a referee feel, or oh, hang on, um, in my view, this player needs to be checked for HIA, then you can bring the medical's attention to it and ask them, look, this player needs to be checked, you need to take to the field to, to, to be checked. So at the end of the day, you, you have the final say, really. And I don't think it would come to this, but if it did come to the situation where you as a referee feel, look, I really am not happy with this player, he's shown signs of, um, of HIA, or I actually did see him being knocked out, you need to remove him from the field of play. Then you have the final say as a referee if it comes to that. But I would like to think that with all the professionals, the medics, the great job that they do, that it would not come to that. At the end of the day, the referee has has a final say. So if you do have concerns of player safety, for any reason, whatever reason that is, if you have a concern of a player's safety on that field, then you have the power to ask them to remove the player from that field until the issue is dealt with, uh, or if you feel it's unsafe for that player to continue for whatever reason. Nigel, I know that contractually you're not allowed to comment on uh, your own performances or those of your uh, fellow re- referees specifically, and you know I'm quite happy to honour that. So I'll keep this uh, thing in general. O- over the weekend, there was an incident um, chasing player stopped actually to the side, not not in front of a catching player who, because of his momentum, actually came into the, the player and it virtually landed on him. And I couldn't see actually what the chasing player could have done much different apart from diving on the floor. If he could, in fact, have anticipated that the trajectory of the of the catcher would have you know, brought him into contact. Are we? I mean, and this is this is happening. You know, the very difficult decisions for uh, you know uh, officials. Can you foresee, or would you support um, a change in the law to to say that players, you know, just have to be stationary when they catch the ball, and that you know that would um, avoid this difficulty. I don't think there needs to be change in the law. To be honest, but okay. I just think as a referee, uh, you need to judge on the actual fact of what's happened at the time and, and you take into account ev- everything you know if if a player is standing still and a player jumps into him then you take that into account you take into account well has the player on the ground has he done anything illegal um you know was he nudged by another player causing him to go into a position that he didn't want to go and then causing a player to jump into him or come over him so you you take everything into account and you you need to deal with the merit i think i, I think the law of or the, the protocol and the directive that we use in dealing with players in the air, I don't think there's nothing wrong with that the way it is. We, we don't see the big contacts in the air as we used to. Players are much more aware now of what the responsibility is. And also, at the end of the day, you as a referee deal with every situation as you see it. And if you feel there has been no act of foul play, then you refereed accordingly. What you have to decide as a referee, when you're looking at foul play, you need to look at that and think, right, has this player 
committed of an act of foul play. And if you feel no, he hasn't, then the player has no case to answer then, and it's, it's a situation of, of play on. Hi, Nigel. It's Maggie here. Hi, Maggie. How are you? I'm all right. Um, I'm going to ask you a question as a pundit slash commentator. Uh, and obviously, I watch a lot of the games on TV, and the commentators and pundits are always questioning sometimes what the referees um, do in their calls. Do you ever watch games back with the commentary, and do you challenge those commentators and pundits <laughs> on what they've said? I wouldn't have time to review my own game. I think <laughs> the commentators and telling them a bit too often that they're getting things wrong. Like sometimes I watch a game and and the referee makes a decision, myself included. You make a decision sometimes and you get it wrong, and the commentators say, "Oh, that's a good decision by the referee. He's got that right." And I'm thinking to myself, "I didn't get that right," or the referee hasn't got that right. And then most people, apart from the referees themselves, will listen to the commentators. Oh, the referee's got it right. And then I watch other games. And I see the referee get something 100% correct. That's a good call, spot on. And the comedy is the same. Oh, the referee's got that wrong. And then everybody thinks, oh, the referee's got that wrong. And I'm thinking to myself, no, the referee has not got it wrong. The referee has got it right. Um, now, in all fairness, um, a lot, most of the commentators are pretty good in all fairness, and, and they know their laws, and they get them right, you know. And uh, very, very few of them get the, the things wrong sometimes. But from time to time, they, they do. But I've got to say, Brian gets it spot on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll give the checks in the post. Uh, Nigel... <laughs> Great as always. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Pleasure. All the best, boss. Bye bye. Maggie, just time very quickly to look forward to the final uh, pool games. And there are some big games coming up given the way that the uh, pools sit at the moment. Let's, um, you know, you're, you're an England player, so am I. Um, let's, let's start with that. Saracens, can they do it? Because Claremont. Um, uh, Ospreys, they still are in with a shout as well. Ospreys have a two-point advantage, but only one of them is likely to win that, so the door is open. Will Saracens do it? Um, I like to think they, they will. I mean, you know, they've lost Billy now with due to injury. Um, they're playing against Northampton Saints at home. Um, they've just got to, they've got to win. They've got to win well, basically. Mm. So it's a tough one. Um you know, the Saracens are a sort of side where when their back's against the wall, they really pull it out of the bag. And I, I do think they will do that. But Northampton, you know, they're, they're riding on a wave, playing really well, um, beating Clement. So you kind of think that's going to be a tough game. But playing Saracens at Allianz Park is never an easy place to, to go and, and come away with a victory. Leinster, who are probably the form team, actually, and, you know, for me would be one of the favourites for this particular tournament. They've definitely qualified. Exeter, Montpellier. Exeter to go through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, again, we just talked to Gareth before and he, he sounds really positive about how the team are playing and they're, they're, they are full of confidence at the moment. Um, Glasgow, they, they're, they're out of it already now, so mm-hmm. I don't expect... Um, I expect well, I expect Exeter to put on a good few um, amount of points against Glasgow. And But yeah, I do think Exeter have the potential to go on to progress further uh, you know, and do well. What about this group? Toulon, 18 points. Scarlet, 17. Bath, 13. Uh, that's going to be a difficult one. Bath are away at Benetton. The Scarlet's have got Toulon at home. 
Who would you choose from that? Do you know, I'm, I'm so looking forward to that Scarlets-Toulon match. I think that's going to be a real tasty battle. Uh, you, you know, Scarlets are playing some good rugby. They, they looked really good against Bath. Um, you can't count Toulon now, uh, as, of, uh, as always. But, you know, against Scarlets at home again, they're going to have all the confidence. I mean, the funny of the way that Scarlets have played, it is possible, you know, if they don't uh, get anything at all, in in Toulon, that Bath, uh, well, certainly in that group could uh, come second, which would render Scarlets even on seventeen. It's not going to be enough for uh, uh, one of the top three um, best seconds anyway. So, uh, must win game for them. I, I, it would be a shame, actually. I think if they didn't go through the way they've been playing, and you know, for the Welsh regions uh, in general. Let's finish off uh, with this. Um, Leicester are out, but uh, Munster um, and Racing, they've got opportunities. I tell you what, I've never played in a stadium that looks like a nightclub. And I tell you what, it just seemed, the atmosphere seemed fantastic at Racing. Um, Is that the way forward? I think it's amazing. What's it? The U Arena? Is that what it's called? It's, it's I've just, no idea. It, it just looked like a nightclub to me. I thought it was great. It looked brilliant. I think that's what. I think that's the way forward. It almost looks like you know we were talking to Dan Lyle there about American yeah. sport, and that's what it is. You go to an arena, and it's the entertainment that gets you sucked into it. And as a spectator, you want to come and watch. And I truly believe uh, Rassin are creating something quite interesting there. Um, but they're up against uh, Leicester. Uh, Obviously, away at Leicester. Um, Leicester are out of it at the moment, so it's not really. I think it's going to be. I think Raxon are going to put on a few points there, depending on what Leicester do. I don't imagine they'll put. Um, I don't know. They might put some England players in, but I, I, I probably won't doubt it. Well, we shall see. Uh, Europe is always fascinating. This time, it's fascinating, not necessarily because the quality of the players has been of an absolute high standard as in previous years. But the fact is that there have been some really good performances and really poor performances which have mixed up and made the group so tight. And anyone who says that they can bring any certainty uh, what will happen is either a fool or, you know, they ought to... Or there must be a clairvoyant. Well, I'm sorry, but that's all we've got time for. We could talk for a long, longer, but um, time constraints have beaten us. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. Thank you very much to my co-host Maggie Alfonsi and my producer Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because it's absolutely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it.